All right. As we have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be looking at <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 8 as we're going through this on 1 Kings. I found it, I love that little 3D video I had found last week with respect to the temple. And I was looking at the tabernacle pictures as well. And uh, just the idea of the first thing when you enter into uh, this holy place is the sacrifice. And that is the first thing that you find there, the altar. And um, God's house and Solomon's heart is this, the title of this lesson. And we're going to look here, obviously, at the temple uh, and moving forward with this. First Kings chapter 8, verse 1, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those did the priests and Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord into his place, in the, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubims spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves, that the ends of the staves were seen in the holy place before the oracle. And they were not seen without, and there they are unto this day. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Fellow citizens, and one statement that was made here uh, it goes on, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. Abraham Lincoln spoke those words to the American Congress on December 1st, 1862. But it could have been that King Solomon could have spoken them to the Jewish leaders when he dedicates the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles in the 24th year of his reign. No matter where the Jews are in this world or what the century is, they have their roots in Abraham, Moses, King David. And Ma David is mentioned 12 times in Section 2, and Moses is mentioned three times here. During his prayer, Solomon refers to God's covenant uh, with his father. We're going to 1 Kings chapters 8 and 9, or 2 Chronicles chapters 5 through 7 in this section. And also the covenant that God would give to Moses, recorded in Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30. So the, pr the main thrust here is in a prayer that Solomon is going to be giving to the Lord. That God would hear them as they would pray towards the temple, that God's presence would be on the temple, but when they sin and they pray towards the temple, that God would hear them. And the promise, this request is based on the promise given in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. If you want to look at that, we'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 30, shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, 
The blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and thou shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity. And have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the utmost, outmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. The Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possess, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecute thee. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand and the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy cattle and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. And thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law. And if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. So here is again, what kind of house is Solomon going to be dedicating here? If we were to read all of 1 Kings chapter 8 and chapter 9 uh, to verse 9, we see Solomon's dedication. The first thing that we see as we read here in the first, eight, uh, first 11 verses of chapter 8 is it is a house of God. Solomon assembles the Jewish leaders of Israel and whoever the citizens were that could attend from the north to the south that they might assist them in dedicating the temple to God. The word house is used 26 times in the passage, 37 times in 2 Chronicles chapters 5-7. through So this structure is God's house. But what made this costly in the building of the house of the Lord? Not simply that God commanded it to be built, uh, or that he chose Solomon to build it, these plans, or that he had even given these plans to David. These matters were important, but the thing is, this temple is God's house for God's presence, and for the presence of the Lord was there in the sanctuary, and now God wants to put his presence upon the temple. The second thing we find, and the first thing we also see here in verses 1 through 9, as it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, the second thing is we find here is the ark was brought in. It dwelleth among, between the cherubims. The pagan nations had their temples. You had the altar priests, sacrifices, and other things that the pagans have. And God wants to put his special hand upon the temple. So the true and living God dwells here in the temple, in the temple <clears throat> here on Mount Moriah. So Solomon's first act of dedication was to have the Ark of the Covenant brought from the tent of David, where it was pitched, and placed in the inner sanctuary of this temple. We found the tabernacle equipment and furnishings as we looked at last week, 2 Chronicles 5.5. They would bring these in. And the Ark of the Covenant was the only piece of furniture kept in active service. Because nothing could replace the throne of God, or the law of God, that was kept in the Ark. The dedication service would take place during the Feast of Tabernacles, significant, because for the ark had led Israel all the way through the wilderness. The cherubim on the original golden mercy seat looked at each other, while the new cherubim looked outward toward the width of the Holy of Holies. I mean, the, 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 the wings of these 
cherubim would reach from wall to wall. 1 Kings 6, 23 to 30. The angels of God not only look into the Holy of Holies and look at the mysteries of God's grace, but they also behold the ministry of God. You have there on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, talking about the angels unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them, that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, so down from heaven, which, the angel, which things the angels desire to look into. So they desire to learn about God's grace from God's people. There's several passages, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, 1 Corinthians eleven ten. For this cause ought the uh, woman to have power on her head because of the angels. So they're continually looking and they're, they're watching humanity. Seeing what's going on and you know, 1 Corinthians 4 9 says, For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. So again, the angels are watching us and our actions, seeing uh, obviously how God's grace um, transcends upon us, seeing how uh, it works upon us. 1 Timothy 5 21. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, obviously God's angels, the elect ones, right? God's angels. But thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. So at one time, a pot of manna and the staff of Aaron stood before the ark, both of which were reminders of the rebellion of Israel. And you have the, the ark you have the, the staff there, the budded staff, and the Ten Commandments within the ark. But the nation was now making a new beginning. It has God's temple that God had given the plans for, that God had put his hand upon. The important thing was that Israel would obey God's laws. As we read there in Deuteronomy 30, the conditions for God's blessings upon Israel was obedience. The other thing that this temple is signifying is that the Israelites are no longer a pilgrim people. They're no longer wandering in the desert. They have an established place from which to uh, disseminate to the world the truths of God. And the glory comes down as we look at verses 10 and 11. When the priests were come out of the, verse, uh, 1 Kings eight ten, and it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand a minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. The ark was a, but a symbol of the throne and presence of God. It was the actual presence of the Lord that made it important. And once they've honored the Lord, God's presence came and filled this house. God had guided Israel through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a fire by night. Now God settles Israel and saying, listen, this is the place I want you to worship me. The glory, the presence of God's glory, really is a distinguishing mark of the nation of Israel. If we were to look at, let's look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. And you know what, as I thought about some of the parallels, obviously, between God's presence uh, with Israel then and God's presence with us now, the fact is that God wants to be an active part of his people. In Exodus 33, verse 12, 
it reads, and Moses, we'll read through verse 23, the end of the passage, and Moses said to the Lord, see, thou sayest unto me, bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto them, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. God is saying, and and Moses in this dialogue with the Lord is saying, God, I don't want to go if you're not with me. He says, the thing that makes us distinctly different is that you're with us. Verse 17, the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by. I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and I will, and, excuse me, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand. And thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Moses here on the mountain with the Lord, and, and Moses says, Listen, God, I want your presence. You know what, that's a distinguishing mark of us as believers. I was just at a funeral yesterday and I was talking with one of the family members. Uh, The lady had, uh, uh, her family had moved her up to South India to evade the residential school system. And I was talking with the daughter. The lady was in her 90s when she passed, but the daughter, and she said, you're, she said, you're not a Catholic. I thought you were a Christian. She said, I I could tell you, you didn't seem Catholic. You seem like a Christian. I said, well, I'm glad. You know, in further conversations with her, and the lady had, a, uh, had talked to her mother about knowing for sure that she was on her way to heaven. The lady lives in Quebec. And it was a wonderful conversation, but there's a difference between us as believers to those who are not. There's a different spirit about us. But it's not our spirit, it's God's spirit. In Romans 9, 4, it tells us, Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Pertaineth the adoption we have God's presence with us. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 19 through 22, uh, we would learn about God's glory departing from the tabernacle. And now the glory has returned. Where Phineas' wife was with child, near to be delivered. And when she hears Phineas here, hears the ark is taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband, this is Eli, uh, when his two sons, Hophni and Phineas. They were wicked men, and Eli, his father, and she would name the child Ichabod, meaning the glory is departed, but here God is bringing the glory back. The nation would sin again and eventually be taken to Babylon, and Ezekiel the prophet would have the vision of the glory of God leaving the temple, Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. As he would see it, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, about the glory of God. But God would also allow Ezekiel to see the glory return to the kingdom temple in chapters, uh, chapter 43, verses 1 through 5 of Ezekiel. 
But I can imagine if I'm here with Solomon as he's dedicating this place to God. I mean, as we saw just in a 3D last week, kind of an artist's rendition of what the temple looked like based upon biblical writings, uh, it would have, I mean, but it far exceeded any uh, idea that we could have of the magnitude of the beauty of God's house. And since the coming there that God had given there, since the disciples and also what transpired there at Pentecost with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God residing within each of us individually, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, wherein we are all a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. You have the church local where the Spirit of God is also, and then you have uh, all local churches as an institution also from which God, Ephesians chapter 2. So until Jesus comes to take eternal glory, our privilege and responsibility is to bring glory to him as we serve here on earth. This temple is to speak of the glory of God. It is to speak of the magnitude and the beauty and the holiness of God. Because it stands apart in the the blood sacrifice that they would have. Uh, It stands in the fact of God's very literal presence. And you attempt to enter the Holy of Holies other than once a year and other than the high priest and you're a dead man. Now when when Israel would sin, God's spirit departed allowing these pagan nations to come in and to steal all that would comprise the temple. Because God did not want his temple to be merely a place of worship for mechanical religious purposes. He wants his place to be a testimony. And as the local churches today, that they would manifest the glory of the Lord. But it's a house of testimony, verses 12 through 21. Let's look at this here in 1 Kings chapter 8. About Solomon's temple, then spake Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee in house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, And hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build an house that my name might be therein, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David, my father, to build an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David, my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build an house unto my name, thou didst well and it was in thine heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son, that shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spake. And I am risen up in the room of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have set there a place for the ark. Wherein is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land? of Egypt. Jehovah God is being glorified here. You want to know something else? God doesn't just give us his presence. He also gives us his word. Because within the ark was the Ten Commandments. God made sure 
that he, they had a written record of what God expected of them. So it's not, you know, sometimes we have in this day and age, well, the Spirit led me to do this, but it's in clear conflict with the Word of God. God doesn't just give us His Spirit. He gives us the Word to make sure that the Word agrees with His Spirit's leading. We find in verses 12 and 13, a settled place, kind of the mystery of God. The king was standing on a special platform facing the sanctuary. The priests were at the altar. And the people were gathered all in an assembly, a big congregation of people. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, if you want to look there, verse 13, we'll come back here for 2 Chronicles 6, 13. At this dedication, this is quite a, I don't know if, an amazing prayer that Solomon gives. I, I love to, to read about it and, and just think upon the words that he's speaking and the sad part is, if only Solomon would have heeded the words that he would have spoken here. The 700 wives and 300 concubines, he would end up, and Ecclesiastes really is a, a book about his sorrow for his actions. Second Chronicles 6.13, for Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long and five cubits broad and three cubits high and had set it in the midst of the court and upon it he stood and kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hand toward heaven. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 12. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them, of Asaph, of Heman, of Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them, and 120 priests sounding with trumpets. I mean, there is tremendous sound. There's a whole glorious orchestra. And here is Solomon before all of the people at the dedication of the altar, and he kneels down before God. He's understanding here that God is God's place. So he's kneeling in humility before all these people. It's a broken position. I think it would do us well sometimes in even services in the kneeling of prayer. It kind of smit my heart, smote my heart as I was thinking about this sometimes in prayer, in church. Just kneeling. It's his house. It tells us here in verse 12 of 1 Kings 8, the Lord said that the glory of the Lord, excuse me, <clears throat> the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. Why speak of darkness when they had just beheld God's radiant glory? Solomon is referring to the words of the Lord to Moses at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19.9, the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come to thee in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. So, and Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. So a thick cloud, you can't see in it. A thick cloud of darkness upon the mountain. When it, here is Moses on top of the mountain, and the people just see this very, very thick cloud. They can't see it. There's a kind of a, a darkness, if you would. It says in, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, Exodus 19, 16. Exodus 20, verse 21, Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. Deuteronomy 4, 11. And the mountain burned with fire into the midst of heaven with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. Deuteronomy 5.22 talks about a thick darkness. 
So Solomon is connecting the events of Moses to the present day, saying, listen, we have God's presence here amongst us. As I think upon that, (laughs) that was the very first thing that God wanted to do with Adam and Eve was to dwell among them. It was their unrighteousness that would push God from them. And here is God dwelling amongst his people in the promised land in fulfillment of the covenant promises that he had made with Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years prior. The presence of God is here. His holiness. Now God is light and he dwells in light, but he cannot fully reveal himself to you and I. Exodus 33, 20, there shall no man see me and live. 1 John 1, 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, but the very presence and cloud of the Lord of his presence. The emphasis on Sinai is hearing from God, not seeing him. Lest the Jewish people be tempted to make images of their God and worship him, much like, unlike what the Catholic Church tries to do in all these images all over the building. And unlike that Renaissance painting that oftentimes is depicted as quote-unquote Jesus, God says, I don't want you worshiping any images. So he brings a dark cloud, a thick cloud, in the representation of, of his presence being there. Israel was to be a people of the word as, we, as we've been talking about on Wednesday night, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6 through 9 about when you stand up and you sit down and when you go out and when you come in upon the doorposts of your house are the words of the Lord. God wants the Israelites to be a people of the word. God wants the believer, the Christians of today, to be a people of the word, hearing it and obeying it, and he wants to be amongst his people. And thankfully, we don't have a thick cloud upon us, but we have his very presence within us. In Psalm 18, 9, David envisions the Lord with darkness under his feet and darkness as his canopy. If you want to look with me here at Psalm 18, 9 and 11. You want to know, the other thing is, when you can, can you imagine as the Israelites, there's a tabernacle and you continue to look wherever you're stationed, whatever tribe of the 12 tribes that are positioned around the tabernacle, which was in the very centerpiece of all of the Israelite encampment, and you look, this is out in the, the wilderness, but you look and there is a cloud by day and a fire by night, and that is a represent, that is a, a, a symbol of God's very presence. And yet, they would so easy, easily whine and complain, but yet the very symbol of God was there, and they could look and they could see it all day, all night long. It was there. We as a people can so easily forget about the value of God's very presence being with us. Psalm 18, 9. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. In verse 10, and he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. Verse 11, verses 9 and 11 is what I wanted to look at. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the sky. So again, David sees this idea of darkness under his feet. 
Psalm 97.2, if you want to turn over there. This idea of the darkness that David sees again. Clouds and darkness around about him, righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. So there's a mystery about God that humbles us. We don't always understand him and his ways. There's a mystery that encourages us to trust him. Solomon doesn't want the people to think that God is now their neighbor now that the temple is amongst them. That they could speak to him any way that they wanted to or uh, that you know, they could please him any way that they choose. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There is an awe and a grandeur to the things of God that he is saying, listen, when we come before the Lord, it is is a holy thing, holy God. It is not to be cavalier. It is not a haphazard, lighthearted thing when we come to worship God. It is a serious matter. Like Solomon, is a, like a servant reporting to their master, Solomon announces that the house is built to be a place for God's dwelling. Moses would finish the work of building the tabernacle. Our Savior finished all the work that the Savior, that the Father had instructed him, and then he said, it is finished. John the Baptist and Paul would finish their courses in retrospect. Paul would say, I fought a good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. All of us will give an account of our life. And it behooves us to be faithful to the calling with which he's given to us. Romans 14, look with me here, Romans 14, verse 10. Just, yeah. As I think about this in the dedication of the temple, and Solomon kneeling, I mean, I'm just... It almost breaks me to want me in that place of contrition before God. He's a wonderful God. In verse 10 of Romans 14, for, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. We're going to, be, we're going to have to give an account for what I've done and how I've acted before the Lord and others. Pretty serious and somber thing. Now am I doing it? And I have the very presence of God within us. Within me, and you have, not within us, but I have God's presence within me, and so do you, if you're a blood-bought, born-again believer. Verses 15 through 21, going back to our passage here in 1 Kings 8, as he speaks about the goodness and faithfulness of God. Now, 
Warren Wearsby said in more than 50 years of ministry, I wouldn't agree with, there's some things, Warren Wearsby would have some more ecumenical, he would have some ecumenical positions with which I would not agree. But he said, it's been my privilege to assist many local churches in dedicating new sanctuaries. In my messages, I've tried to emphasize the work of God and the history of his people. A.T. Pearson used to say, history is his story. He would go on to say, it's easy for new church members and new generations that come along to take for granted or forget the history of their church. The weekly Sabbath, the annual feast that the Israelites, the presence of the temple of God, would bear witness to the Jewish people, both young and old, that Jehovah was their God. And as I think about this, it's easy for us at this church, I mean, we're still, obviously, lots of room to grow. And there's been amazing things that God has done in this church. I mean, for us to have this building, for the new roof, for the provision, the continued provision to keep this church afloat, what God has done is nothing less than to the glory of God and His grandeur. And the succeeding generations ought to know what God has done. But not just looking at the past for the might and the, 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 the power of God to work. And as I was just reading actually this morning in Psalm 51, finishing up Psalm 51 in my devotions, it's every generation that wants to see God's hand mightily work. And it might not necessarily be in uh, constructing a building and all the work that has to be done. You know, this building very well may take many, many years with lots of construction to go. But God is not done yet. And the next generation needs to know what God has done here. And the succeeding generation needs to know what God has done. And every generation, that's why when Israel crosses the Red Sea, God said, set up 12 stones so that, or in the Jordan, excuse me, He said, set up 12 stones so when you cross over and you see those stones and your kids ask, Dad, what are those stones? God got us across this river. It is God's work that got us to where we're at. But every generation, we need to continue to see God's hand work and the presence, and we can't take for granted what is already there, as though it is a, a right that is given to us. It's not. It's what God's done. But lots of labor, lots of heartache and tears and bloodshed and the word remember is used 14 times in the book of Deuteronomy because God doesn't want his people to forget. And so God in his goodness and grace makes a covenant with David concerning his family and his throne and he includes in the covenant the promise of a son who will build the temple. So when God speaks with his mouth, he accomplishes with his hands. We find that in verse here, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, verse 15, 1 Kings 8, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, and, with his hand, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying. So God makes promises, and he fulfills it. Solomon's giving credence to the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. He does it for his own honor. God's name is referred to at least 14 times in Solomon's address of prayer to the Lord. Verses 16 through 20. In his whole entire prayer, excuse me. So the king was careful to give God all the glory as he kneels before the people, as he's talking with them. 
And whenever the people would come to worship, they would remember that the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord made the temple possible. Then in verses 22 through 53, let's look at 2 Chronicles 6.13 again. I want you to see this, 2 Chronicles 6.13. This is, the temple is a, it's a house of testimony. It's a house of God's glory. It's also a house of prayer. 2 Chronicles 6.13, as we had looked at uh, earlier, For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long and five cubits broad and three cubits high and had set it in the midst of the court. So what's he doing? And upon it he stood and kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. Our traditional posture for prayer, hands folded, eyes closed, would have been unknown. He kneels. Hands lifted up to heaven. It shows a poverty and an expectancy as they wait for the Lord. In 1 Kings 8.38, I want to read a little bit further here. We'll start at verse 22. Uh, 1 Kings 8, we're going to read some more of this. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of of Israel and spread forth his hands towards heaven. So here he is kneeling in this position as we would find in 2 Chronicles 6.13. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him, thou spakest also with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hands, as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded, yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant. And to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there. And thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place, and hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray towards this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And when thou hearest, forgive, if any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear in the oath, come before thine altar in this house, and hear thou in heaven, and do and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked bring his way upon his head, justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee and shall turn again to thee and confess thy name and pray and make supplication to thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy people Israel. and Bring them again into the land which thou gavest unto their fathers when heaven is shut up and there is no rain. Because they have sinned against thee, if they pray towards this place and confess thy name, and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, 
that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon thy land, which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locusts, or if there be caterpillar, if there be their enemy besiege them in the land of their city, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands toward this house. And hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive. And do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou, even thou only, knowest the heart of all the children of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy namesake, they shall hear of thy great name and of thy strong hand and of thy stretched out arm. They shall come and pray towards this house. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all the people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee as do thy people Israel. That they may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. You go on also in verse 54. You can read on this passage here but and it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his hands kneel, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven and he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice saying the verse goes on if you read what goes on just a little bit further we'll have to look at that in the coming weeks but here is Solomon saying, listen, this temple is not just a place for a routine worship. This is a place that God's presence lies. That God's dwelling amongst His people. It's kind of like, as we find in Genesis, God walking in the cool of the day, asking, you know, where art thou with Adam and Eve? It was a customary thing for them to be walking with God. God wants to be amongst His people. Do you realize in Exodus chapter 9, verse 29, in speaking of this idea of God being amongst his people, Moses said unto him, As soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands in the Lord, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know how the earth, that the earth is the Lord. It's all of his. And, you know, in Psalm 63, 4, Thus will I bless thee while I live, I will lift up my hands in thy name. There is this idea of giving of a posture of humility before the Lord. Psalm 143, 6, I have stretched forth my hands unto thee, my soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Again, a stretching forth of his hands, he's lifting it up. And I'm not talking, there's this charismatic way to do it, and I'm not talking about that, uh, in this craziness of a, uh, an emotion-led thing, but I'm saying from the sincerity of heart, of a prostration before the Lord that we're understanding whose presence we're entering. Heaven is used quite a bit frequently in this, but they're awaiting the answer of the Lord as verses 44, and I'll read that in the coming, I'll read that next week, Lord willing. But Solomon opens his prayer with a thanksgiving to God, a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And I want us to think about this idea uh, really, it's a house of prayer. God makes a preeminence, a prominence 
God makes a point, and even Jesus Christ there in the temple would overthrow the money changers and those making money within the temple. No, this is the second temple. But he would overthrow them, saying, my house should be called a house of prayer. It tells us something about what God wants with his churches today. So I'm going to end there just on that thought of the house of prayer. God's house. We are ourselves personally the temple of God, but in, but in corporately when believers gather and the, the local church and the members gather, that is God's church. And that very place where they gather is God's house. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you, Lord, I ask that you would help us to have a spirit of contrition and humility before you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to walk closely with thee, to appreciate the very presence of you to whom we enter. I love you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.